Hey guys, we're gonna go ahead and start. Um, <laughs> thanks. Um, if we haven't met yet, my name is Richard Marshall. I'm on staff with Summit College at Duke, and I'm also the Go Now director, which means I plan city projects, Second City. So if you're going overseas, I have a hand in planning it. So yeah, really glad you guys are here. Uh, super excited. I want to go ahead and first apologize that I'm recovering from a cold, and uh, yesterday I started losing my voice. So. If my voice starts cracking, no, I have finished puberty. I am just, uh, you know, trying to get over a sickness. Um, hey, I'd love to start with the story and the exercise. So I have no kids, um, just for full transparency, but I heard a story of a dad who was trying to teach his daughter how to tell the difference between uh, like a fake story or like a fiction story and a real story. And so I thought, since you, since you guys are college students, uh, we can do the same thing. And I feel like you guys should be able to tell the difference. So. We'll go through a few sentences, and I want you guys to either say real or story. Okay, got it? Real or story. Okay, first up, George Washington was the first president of the United States. Real. J.D. Greer is the lead pastor of the Summit Church. Real. <laughs> um, next one. Batman chased down the Joker and threw him in jail. Story. Story is what you're supposed to say. Okay, I think I'm getting different answers, but it's clearly a story. Okay, next. Apollo Creed has had a son named Adonis Creed. Story, if you haven't seen Creed, it's an amazing movie. Okay, next one. Superman flew into the air. Story, next one. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Story. Someone said, I don't know. That's kind of fair, I guess. Okay, next one. A man named Jesus was born to a virgin about 2,000 years ago, claimed to be God, did miracles like walking on water and raising people from the dead, was crucified on a Roman cross, and then rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, where he now reigns as king of the universe. Is that real or a story? So everyone, everyone said real, and I would expect that from an audience of Christians. But I think if we were honest, we'd realize how ridiculous this sounds to non-Christians and just like the average non-Christian person we know. So the Bible is full of support. Uh, the Bible is full of uh, purportedly real but supernatural stories like the creation of Adam and Eve, Noah's Ark and the Flood, Moses leading the people through the Red Sea, Jesus being born of a virgin, and Jesus raising from the dead. And over the past couple centuries, Christians have wrestled with the fact that, man, the stories of the Bible sound ridiculous to the outside world. But they know, those Christians who recognize that, still know they've had real, genuine encounters with Jesus. So they know he's real, that he's alive, they don't think it's a fairy tale. So what do they do with the Bible? There are some people like Karl Barth, who's a 20th, 20th century theologian. People like Karl Barth, they altered their theology as a result. So they began to say that Jesus is real. He walked the earth. Maybe he rose from the dead. Who knows? Um, but the stories you read in the Bible specifically and the words recorded in the Bible can't be true because they go against our logic and our reason when we think about stories. So in other words, people in this camp say, you can trust in Jesus and be saved and actually avoid like an eternity apart from God, but you should not trust the Bible at least not fully, because it's been changed over time. So they say it's simply not the same revelation from God anymore. To, the, to their credit, those guys are like genuine Christians. They're great theologians, but they don't consider the Bible to be the perfect, inerrant, inspired word of God. So I don't know why each of you came to the breakout session. It may be that all the other cool ones filled up, so you got stuck with this one. Uh, it may be because you have some genuine theological or historical questions you would like answered. Or maybe uh, it's like an emotional or a sensitive issue. Maybe for you, the Bible is hard to trust because of some suffering in your life or a sickness or mental health. And, you know, as Josh and Wes were preaching about, you've been holding on to the truth that God is good and that he loves you and that he wants the best for you. But you just have a really hard time trusting God's word. I want you to know that no matter why you came to the session, man, I want you to walk away from this time trusting God more. I'm going to give you a ton of facts. It's going to be like drinking uh, from a fire, fire hose, so it'd be a lot of information. But more than I want you to have a bunch of facts and information, I want you to walk away knowing and trusting God. Okay, we, we have a ton of ground to cover, so I want us to jump right in. Um, so I'll talk about the four questions that we'll go through during this talk. So if you have notes, you could take notes. It'll all be, also be recorded. But the four questions are, one, was the Bible preserved? So lots of people say that the Bible has been changed over time. Um, because of like translations and other things. So first, was the Bible preserved? Does the Bible accurately predict history? Some people say that the Bible is just made up history. So we'll talk about, is it actually like real? 
does the Bible promote injustice? So some say that the Bible promotes violence, oppression, genocide, prejudice, etc. And then lastly, is the Bible relevant for us today? So it's a 2,000-year-old book. Um, so what use of it, or what use is it to us in the 21st century? So we'll jump into those four questions. Um, we got a lot to cover, um, but I'd love to just start out in prayer and just ask God to really speak, speak through me. Father, I thank you for these friends, these brothers and sisters here. God, I thank you for the session. I thank you for your word. Uh, Father, I pray we'd walk away from it, um, walk away from this time trusting you, believing that you are good, believing you want the best for your children. So God, I pray you would speak through me um, and God, that you would be glorified today. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I'll go through these four questions and then we'll also do a Q&A at the end. So if you have any questions, you can go easy on me, but uh, we'll have a Q&A. Um, so the first question, was the Bible preserved? Was the Bible preserved? Okay, raise your hand if you've ever played the game Telephone. Yeah, so most people have played it, but it's a kid's game. And the point is you stand in line and you whisper to the next person whatever the previous person whispered in your ear. So someone typically starts with something like, Harry Potter is the best book series of all time. And the last person gets something like, hair and plants typically take silent wind chimes. So it's a, yeah, it's a crazy game. Um, and so a lot of people say the Bible is like a big game of telephone. I mean, the books of the Bible were written generally between 1400 BC and 90 AD. So that much time, especially with us living in 2023, who's to say it's not just a big game of telephone? How can we know that his words, that Jesus' words specifically, have not been distorted over 2000 years? And I think as Christians, if we don't have trustworthy accounts of what Jesus said, then we as Christians don't have any ground to stand on actually. So essentially the question is, how can we be sure that the words in our English Bibles are accurate, are accurate reflections of the Hebrew and Greek originals? So basically you can boil the question down into uh, it being an issue of transmission and translation. So transmission and translation. First, we'll start off with transmission. The Bible was transmitted to us by making copies of the original documents. So with most historical documents, including the Bible, we don't have the original papers that Paul and Peter and Moses wrote on. Um, and that's okay, um, because Christians for all of time have believed that scripture is inspired, which means that God moved through the human authors, through their creativity and their own choice, God moved through their creativity and choice to communicate what he wanted to us. So we can trust that the original documents have the inspired word of God. But the documents themselves are not inspired. There's nothing special about paper. It's the message that's on the paper and in the paper that actually gives the gospel life. And so we have copies of copies from over the centuries, but just because we have copies doesn't invalidate the message in those copies. So basically we have enough copies and old enough copies uh, to still be confident that the biblical message has not changed. So I actually wanna show you a really cool chart. It's really nerdy, but hang with me. So we have this chart of a bunch of different ancient uh, like historical documents and fiction. So uh, at the top is Homer's Iliad, um, pretty famous, so read it if you haven't, I guess. Uh, then you have like Plato, Aristotle, other philosophers and historians. It's really interesting. If you look at the Iliad, which is one of the most you know, revered documents in history, uh, the first we'll look at the time span. The time span for all of those, including the Iliad, um, time span designates when it was first written to, a, to when uh, we have the earliest copy. So uh, there were 500 years between when the Iliad was written and any documents we have of the Iliad. So 500 years, but no one really questions the Iliad's legitimacy. Um, you also have a huge number of copies, 643. So there's basically 643 copies or parts of copies of the Iliad. So uh, that's how they piece together the, part, the kind you can read on the internet. Um, but if you go down to the New Testament, the time span is only 30 years between when it was written or finished compiling and the earliest documents we have. So the New Testament was probably finished in around 90 AD and the earliest documents we have are from about 120 AD. So only 30 years passed, but there's only a 30 year uh, gap between when uh, the New Testament was actually recorded with the originals and the copies we have. Additionally, we have 5,600 Greek manuscripts. So that means like copies of the Gospel of John, for example. We have like 5,000 of those. Some of them are parts, some of them are holes. Um, but the point is that the New Testament specifically 
is a really well-preserved document that far, out see, far outweighs and exceeds any other historical document uh, really in history. So we have a ton of stuff there. Um, I could spend a ton of time going into that. But basically, I want to talk about how uh, even though we have all those manuscripts, not all the manuscripts are identical. So there's something called textual purity, which just talks about uh, what is the similarities between all the texts. So I'll show you a few examples, but basically the Bible between all 5,600 manuscripts is 98.5% textually pure, which means uh, generally speaking, 98.5% of all the letters and the words are the same. So I'll show you a couple examples of um, where they are different. So first, you have Luke 7:11. Most manuscripts say, soon afterward, he, Jesus, went to a town called Nine, etc. Um, but there are some manuscripts that say, the next day he went to a town. So the first one said, uh, what was the first one, Bryson? Can you go back? <laughs> uh, soon afterward, and the next one says, the next day. So that's obviously a pretty like negligible effect. It doesn't affect any doctrine. It doesn't affect your interpretation of the text. So a lot of the um, errors in that 1.5% 1, 1. come from things like that. They also come from um, omission of words. Uh, so another uh, example from Matthew 5.22. Most manuscripts uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. There are some manuscripts that add without cause. So I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother without cause will be liable to judgment. This basically means uh, somewhere along the road, someone probably added in uh, <laughs> thanks. Uh, someone probably added in this word without cause because they're trying to clarify what Jesus is talking about. Whether or not that's okay to do as you're copying the Bible is a completely different story. But the reality is uh, adding without cause or not without cause doesn't affect what Jesus is talking about. And it doesn't affect any serious point of doctrine that we have as Christians. Um, so that's a lot of the 1.5%. The last remaining, like however many percent, um, of errors that are relatively serious are things like John 8, 1 through 11, which I won't read, but it's the story of the woman who was caught in adultery. And so it's a pretty moving story, um, but that story specifically is not in the oldest manuscripts. So that means at some point, someone either inserted that story, maybe like 100 years later or something, or it was in the originals and someone early on forgot to include it. So we don't really know, but with that passage specifically, there's nothing really significant theologically or doctrinally in that passage that you can't get from other passages. So I see your hand. We'll come back at the end and answer your question. Um, okay, so when it comes to transmission, in summary, there's basically no reason to seriously doubt that we have access to reliable copies of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So if transmission's out of the way, that leads us to decide, do we think it's accurately translated? So we'll talk about translation. In other words, can we really take a language that looks like this and have any confidence that it actually means this? So the answer is yes, but only with a lot of careful work. Good Bible translations that most of us have, like the ESV, the NIV, the CSB, those are all made in committees. So there are multiple people, even from different denominations, working on one Bible translation and trying to figure out what's the best way to interpret this um, into English. They take into account things like idioms, slang words, et cetera, and they make sure that us as modern English readers will be able to understand what the authors are communicating. So even though biblical Greek is old, it's pretty ancient, um, people spend their whole lives studying Greek so that they can give us things like the ESV Bible. And that's good news because uh, I don't know about you guys, but learning Greek is hard and I'd rather just read it in English. Um, but if you doubt that and you think it's impossible to translate well into a different language, I'll give you a couple examples. So take the sentence, uh, yeah, take the sentence, um, no, nah, that's dope, bro. I hear Charles say that, Charles in the back, he says that all the time. Um, but if you take those three words, no, nah, that's dope, bro. You take nah, like that could mean no, but when you're saying that, like uh, you're probably saying like, oh, it's like, like you're kind of interrupting or getting their attention. So it's not like a no. Um, that's dope. Uh, dope to some people has a negative meaning about a substance that I won't say. Um, but it could also mean, oh yeah, that's cool. Like it's like a positive word in this context. And then bro, it's like a term of a term of endearment or affection. So, um, you know, Amir, you're my bro. So call you that. Um, so you take those three words and let's say you want to translate it. You could translate that differently. So a couple examples, you could say, oh, that is great, my dear friend. Or you could say, friend whom I love, that is excellent. So 
all of those mean basically the same thing. But the way I say, nah, that's dope, bro, I wouldn't say that to like my grandfather or like my mom. Uh, but I may say, oh, that's great, mom. Like, congrats. Um, so that's basically why different Bible translations translate things differently. It's because they have different philosophies of how to interpret certain words or like the audience they're potentially trying to communicate to. So uh, we kind of answered this first question um, about if the Bible has been preserved. So basically the Bible has been passed down well enough and translated well enough that we have no reason to not trust the Bible in terms of the words that we read in our Bibles. Um, more than that though, we can trust God to use the Holy Spirit to reveal himself through those words. Even if there's like a word or two off, um, the words on the page don't change hearts. It's actually the Holy Spirit that changes hearts. Okay, so I know that was a lot. First question, was the Bible preserved? Second question, does the Bible accurately predict history? Does the Bible accurately predict history? As I was preparing for this, I'm not actually sure if I like really hear people argue that the Bible contradicts history as much as I hear people just think the Bible is made up history. Like it's kind of just like fairy tales. Someone just wrote it for some moral lessons. Um, whether, it, whether it was written in 2000 BC or 2000 AD doesn't really matter to a lot of people because, because either way it's just ancient moral lessons um, that people wrote down. So um, a fascinating but really surprising aspect to most people about the Bible is that it actually overlaps a lot with history, including what ancient historians tell about the world. But I could talk about that, but instead, I'm gonna talk about what the Bible does that no other book has ever done well or accurately, and that's predict history. So I don't know if you guys know about uh, movie leakers. I don't know if that's the right word to describe them, but the other day I was talking to my roommate about some movie or a video game or something, and he told me this like information about this movie that hadn't come out. And I was like, bro, how do you know that? Like the movie's coming out in like four months. And he was like, oh, it got leaked by this guy. And he showed me this Twitter account of this random guy. And I was like, how do you know you can trust this random guy on Twitter? And he was saying, this guy makes leaks pretty often. He has a ton of followers, so like he can be trusted. And, so, and, his, and his leaks always come true. And so I don't, uh, personally, I still don't know if that means I should trust a random guy on Twitter. Uh, but the point is, if a movie leaker gets consistently like things right, then it makes sense that people would trust him and follow him. So that whenever you post something new, people aren't like, oh, I don't know if I can trust this guy. It's like, okay, well, he was right about Harry Potter, so I guess I should trust this one. Um, but in one sense, the Bible is kind of like one big movie leak. So God himself is the one disclosing the course of human history and the plan of salvation. It doesn't describe every single detail about the earth and human history, but there are really interesting things that the Bible predicts and that have come true. So I wanna show you three different sets of prom promises or prophecies that have come true in history. And it's gonna be a lot, but uh, just prepare to have your mind blown, okay? Okay, uh, prophecy number one. Um, prophecy number one, it's the disobedience of the Israelites. So I don't have time to get into all the history of the nation of Israel, but in the book of Deuteronomy, specifically in chapter 28, God told Moses, uh, God told the people through Moses, what would happen if they chose to continue to rebel and worship other gods? God doesn't expect them to be perfect because no one's ever gonna be perfect, but he told them all the negative things that would happen if they continue to worship gods that aren't him and if they like live lifestyles of sin over multiple generations. And so I can't read the whole chapter because it's long, but I do have a pretty brief list of some of the things that God said would happen to the nation of Israel if they continued in sin. So I'll just read them really quickly. Uh, curses in the city and in the field, cursed wombs, fields, and food, pestilence, drought, lack of rain, defeat in war, plagues, even cannibalism of parents to children, um, the scattering among the nations or the diaspora, a lack of a resting place for the nation of Israel, and then the Israelites and Jews going back in ships to Egypt. So uh, these are pretty hard to read, but if you read Deuteronomy 28 and then you read other Old Testament books, after like 700, 800 years of God being patient with them, God does bring these curses or these um, judgments on them. And so that's specifically through the Assyrians and the Babylonians conquering them in the 700s, 600s, 500s um, BC. And so God's not like uh, going back on his promise, but he still preserves some of the Israelites to continue worshiping him. And those people end up repenting uh, of their generational um, kind of sins they've been in. And so uh, this is one example of how God in his written word promised something that happened centuries later. And it's really cool. Um, 
to like kind of study Deuteronomy 28 and then study the history of Israel, knowing that, man, these things even happen. Even cannibalism, like that sounds pretty gruesome and it is gruesome. Um, but there is a story in like, I think Second Kings or Second Chronicles where there's like literally a mom that like eats her kid. So uh, these things actually happen. And so I think that's just like one set of prophecies that God makes in the Bible and then they come true. Okay, the second one, which is a little more positive, is the prophecies about the coming Messiah. So we all know Jesus is the Messiah, but when you study the prophecies about him, they're really, really fascinating. Um, depending on how you look at messianic prophecies, there's anywhere between 200 to 400. I may lean more towards 400 prophecies. And so we're actually gonna spend the rest of our time looking at all 400 prophecies. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we're not gonna do that. Um, but I do have a brief list of some of them from the Old Testament. And so we'll kind of run through them. Uh, I'll just highlight a few of the, the ones in bold. But in uh, Micah said uh, Jesus would be born of a, he would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah said he would be born of a virgin. He would be called Emmanuel, God with us. And you can kind of read, um, I can kind of also send this to people if they want it, but you can read the fulfillment in the New Testament in these verses. So these are all about like the life of Jesus. So next, next slide. Here's a few more about Jesus' life. Um, God promised a prophet like Moses in Deuteronomy. And uh, the New Testament says that was Jesus. Um, Zechariah, Zechariah said that um, the Messiah would enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And he did that. And then Isaiah 42 says that um, the Messiah would be a light for the nations. And so we see Revelation, every tribe, tongue, uh, nation, and language worshiping Jesus. So that's all about Jesus' life. The really fascinating part to me is studying the prophecies about Jesus' death. So next slide. Um, okay, Isaiah 53, I'd encourage you guys to read it on your own and then read like the gospel accounts of Jesus' crucifixion. But there's so many things like, it says that Jesus would be oppressed and silent before his accusers. He would be numbered with the transgressors. He would intercede for sinners. He would suffer and die for the sins of others and that he would be buried in a wealthy man's tomb. And if you read Isaiah 53, this is written like 600 years before Jesus the Jews at the time believed the Messiah would come and he'd be the suffering servant. And then Jesus comes and he serves and he suffers. So whether it's Isaiah or Zechariah or all these other books, the Old Testament predicts a Messiah that's coming and, they just, and then Jesus comes and he says, I'm here. And so um, any serious Bible critic, when they read this, they have to come up with some solution of how a text hundreds of years old could actually describe this exact event that happened in history. And so most people do what I call um, interpretive acrobatics and they just dance around it and do hula hoops and other stuff. Um, or they just say it's made up, which is kind of a cop out. Um, so that's the second set of prophecies. The last one, um, a little negative again, but it's the destruction of Jerusalem and the diaspora of the Jews. Um, so in Matthew 24 and Luke 19, Jesus kind of talks about some future things that are gonna happen to both Jerusalem and to uh, the, the Jewish temple. And he predicts that both of them will be destroyed within a generation. And so what's really fascinating um, is that in 70 AD, the Romans come and actually like destroy the temple and ransack the city. So Jesus probably spoke those words in about 30 or 33 AD. And then 40 years later, the Romans come in and do exactly what he said they would do. Um, it's really interesting reading both Matthew and Luke's account because Luke's gospel was probably written after 70 AD. So Luke is recording Jesus' words, but from like uh, on the other side of Jerusalem being destroyed. But Matthew was probably written before 70 AD. So Matthew is actually writing those words when Jerusalem is still standing. And so Matthew is probably really confused as Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple, but then it actually does happen. So even like major Bible critics, you can't say that you can say that Luke maybe uh, predicted it uh, after the fact, but Matthew for sure did not. So those are just three set of prophecies. I guess the question is, what does that mean for us? Like, how does that actually affect our lives knowing that, you know, thousands of years, God, got thousands of years ago, God made these promises. I was thinking about that in my own life. And I just want to ask you to think for a second, where have you seen God's promises recorded thousands of years ago in this book? Where have you seen his promises come true in your life? Where have you been encouraged by the promises of God? I'll just give you a couple. Um, the first is from Romans 8, 35 to 39, thinking about sin and suffering. It says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul wrote that 2,000 years ago, and I still am encouraged that my sin, any suffering I'm facing, that doesn't separate me from God's love. God continues to love me despite my sin, despite the things I've done, and despite any circumstances in my life. That's good news. Maybe uh, it's not sin or suffering for you. Uh, I've been thinking about like confusion or indecision. So Psalm 84, 11 says that no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I read that and I'm initially confused. Um, maybe you're like me and you wanted something so bad and you thought it was a godly thing and that God would be honored. But then, you know, it doesn't happen. And so you, you ask, how can this verse be true? See, when you get to be old like me, um, you start to look back and realize a lot of the things you thought were good and the things you really wanted, um, you start to look back and see, man, how, how the bad things you didn't like or the things that were hard, how those things are actually the good thing in your life. So um, that's just a few examples of how God's word recorded thousands of years ago has really impacted me. And so um, Wes will actually talk tonight about the rest of human history as he talks about future promises. So I won't steal his thunder, but talking about more historical things. Um, so that's the first, first and second question. Um, was the Bible preserved? Does the Bible accurately predict his history? And lastly, or not lastly, we have two more. Um, the third one, does the Bible promote injustice? Does the Bible promote injustice? I think that's a really important one for people in our culture. I feel like people, uh, young people especially, generally care a little less about the historical aspect and care about the moral aspect more. And so some people say that you can't trust the Bible because it clearly promotes things like genocide, violence, oppression, whether it's racially or of women. And they say, if the Bible um, was truly from an all-knowing, all-loving God, then surely it wouldn't include such horrific and tragic stories. And I, I felt that way too at one point. When I first started reading the Bible, I started in Genesis. I didn't even know the New Testament. I just started in Genesis and just read like all the way through Judges and stuff. And I was really confused about why there was so much murder and other things going on. And so I quickly learned that the Bible is not a series of moral lessons. It's not even primarily a series of teachings. It's not a fairy tale where every chapter wraps up nicely. And it certainly doesn't affirm a rosy view of humanity that our culture may want to. Instead, the Bible gives us the brutal truth about sinful human beings. And because of that, uh, the stories in it are sometimes really difficult to read because they really do recount real instances of violence, oppression, genocide, and prejudice. So of course we recognize the Bible contains things like that, um, but it certainly does not promote them. And so the Bible shows us that all of humanity has fallen and all of us are capable of sins like that, apart from God actually changing us and um, leading us down a better path. But I recognize sometimes people's qualms and our qualms with the Bible isn't the stories of those things, but it's actually that God commands some of those things. And so um, all of us recognize humans are kind of lame and you know, they're gonna do things like that. But I think uh, we often take issue with the fact that God himself commands things like violence. So I'll address that. But foundationally, we have to remember that we live in a very different culture and time period than um, you know, 2000 years ago. God's standard of morality has certainly not changed, but our culture's definition of right and wrong has changed. And so it's, it's natural that us in the 21st century, we're, we're gonna read the Bible and have different tensions that we have to wrestle with. And that's normal for any generation of Christians throughout all of time. But we, when we consider this question about um, is God just and does he promote injustice? We have to first remember what Charles said last night, that we have to trust God and his character more than we trust our inclination of what is right and wrong. So basically, forget the human characters of the Bible. Does God actually himself condone those things? And so I just wanna really stress every book of the Bible, all 66 of the books were written by oppressed and marginalized people. The Old Testament authors were all Jewish or they're Israelite or they were Christians. And these were people who had been enslaved, conquered, persecuted and shamed throughout human history. And the New Testament was written by the apostles and uh, of the 11 apostles, so minus Judas, 10 of them were actually violently murdered and martyred for their faith. And then the 11th guy, John, he, um, he was exiled to an island to die of old age there. And they boiled him in like hot oil before they sent him out. So these are not written by elites who are trying to gain power or wealth. These are actually the opposite. They're people who are willing to sacrifice themselves and die for the sake of Jesus. And so I do recognize though that taken out of context, a lot of Bible verses do seem to discriminate or 
Um, there's at least just difficult verses regarding women and foreigners. But if you look at those verses in context and in the right lens, you can really, you can tell that God is really for the oppressed and for the marginalized. And so I'll just focus on violence first. When you think about violence in the Bible, there's a few examples where God does like kill humans or command humans to kill other humans. So a few examples is the flood story in Genesis when humanity is just going crazy and they're violent and wicked. Uh, God brings the flood on them. Um, when the Egyptians are chasing the Israelites through the Red Sea and trying to, to kill them, God closes the Red Sea on the Egyptians and kills just a ton of them. And then you have the conquest in Joshua. So where Joshua and his army of Israelites, God tells them to take over the promised land specifically by, um, by putting all the Canaanites to death. So some people think those are just restricted to the Old Testament, but actually there are things like that in the New Testament. You have Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, um, where God strikes them down right where they're standing because they were lying about their giving. And then you have Acts 12, where um, the king of Judea, Herod, he was being praised by his people as a God. And he said he, he, the text said he wasn't denying it and he was accepting that praise. And so the text says that the angel of the Lord struck him down because he, didn't, he did not give God the glory. And then he was eaten by worms, which is pretty horrific. Um, so there are intense passages like that in the New Testament too. It's not just the old. And so I understand with our 21st century Western minds, that's really hard for us to get our minds around. But you have to remember in each of those stories I just named, none of those people are like great people who have done nothing wrong. God punishes and brings uh, death upon people who deserve judgment for their sin and rebellion against God. So God is judging people like that. Um, and he, yeah, he doesn't just command senseless violence. And so even with the Canaanites example, when God commands the Israelites to destroy those people, he's doing it as an act of judgment because he says that their sin is like really great before him. Jesus does flip that on its head, not contradicting that, but he does point out that along with the physical reality of enemies and war and stuff like that, uh, there's also a spiritual enemy we have, and that's Satan and his minions. So Jesus tells us not to fight against physical enemies, but to actually fight against our spiritual enemies. So demonic powers, spiritual authorities, um, if we want to fight those, we, we don't need to take up the sword. We actually need to take up this sword, um, the other sword. So when it comes to violence in the Bible, I just want to invite us to recognize and, and, and say it's okay for us to like struggle with it. It's, a, it's okay to struggle with some of the stories in the Bible. God wants to, to hear your doubts and hear your questions, but we have to remember God is trustworthy and good. And so we have to trust his character first before we trust our inclination and our sense of morality. So I invite us today, as we continue to talk through these things, I invite us to consider whether or not we trust the God of the Bible. Um, and if we trust the God of the Bible, then naturally we should trust the Bible. Okay, those are the first three questions. Now for the last one. Is the Bible relevant for us today? That's maybe a huge overarching question with all this. The reality is this book is ancient. It's 2,000 years old. The events of Genesis probably happened as early as 2000 BC and it's probably written in the 1400s BC. And then the New Testament was finished in, the, in like 90 AD. So everything in here is at least around 2000 years old. So some people say because of how old it is, because morality has changed, culture has changed, technology, like does this book have any value for us? And so I just have two quick points. The first point of why I think the Bible is so relevant is because the Holy Spirit speaks through it today. There are so many people who come to faith not because they see Christians as an example, that's part of it, uh, but they actually hear the word of God preached and they understand the gospel through the Bible. And so I thought about, um, in my original version of this, I had a bunch of examples of like church theologians like Augustine and Martin Luther and other cool guys that I respect. But then I realized I don't need stories from like hundreds of years ago. I have stories of people like in this room. Um, they're actually not in this room right now, but um, staff members that you may know, I'll go through a few of their stories. So Danny Scrudato, who's on staff at NC State. Uh, Danny was living a lifestyle of sin. And then he met a guy named Justin Leach um, while he was playing basketball in Carmichael Gym. After Danny and uh, Justin read the Bible for several weeks, Danny came to faith and um, decided to trust in Jesus uh, for salvation. And he began following Jesus that semester. And now he's on staff. So it's pretty cool. Uh, we also have Matt Harris, who's on staff at UNC. So Matt accepted Christ at a young age, but throughout the rest of his, or throughout his life, he continued to live with a lot of doubt and skepticism. Um, and specifically, he was trying to like earn his salvation through good works. 
And so it's really through reading specifically Romans 10.9. One night he was reading Romans 10.9, which says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Matt said, um, I texted him about it. He said he, when he read that, it helped him to put more faith in Jesus' finished work and secured love rather than his own effort and human love. And then last, uh, but maybe least, is me. Um, I said, uh, I, for me, reading the Bible is like primarily how I came to faith. It was a really slow, gradual process, starting in Genesis and continuing all the way through. Um, but like specifically when I read the Old Testament, I realized I can trust God. Whoever, whoever this God is of the Old Testament, I can trust him. And so when I got to the New Testament and when people shared the gospel with me, I was ready to trust in Jesus because I trusted the God of the Old Testament. And so whether it's just the three of us or there's so many other people in this room who I'm sure I've come to faith through reading the Bible personally or corporately. And so God is still active and he saves through his word. So I think that's just one reason why the Bible is still really important for us today. Um, the second is that God actually not just saves people through it, but convicts and sharpens believers through it. So I think the ongoing growth in the Christian life comes through the Holy Spirit, but also through the word of God. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that means the word of God actually trains, equips, challenges, convicts believers. And so if you want to survive and thrive in the Christian life, you need a Bible. Like you need to read the word of God consistently. And so with all that, if the Bible is applicable, useful, reliable, all that, what should we do as a response? We should read it daily, however often we should like take time to study God's word because he still speaks through it and is trustworthy. We should trust the things God says is good. So the standards of morality that he gives, we trust that it's timeless and that it's perfect. We should share it with people. I mean, if we think that this is the authoritative word of God that has the power to change people's lives, man, why wouldn't we like, want to read it with people? Why wouldn't we want to share that with people? And then lastly, um, I kind of said this already, but I really do believe the Bible is the primary instrument God uses to take people from death to life. It's not uh, great worship experiences or conferences, even examples, examples are great, but I do think that the Bible in all those contexts is the way that God takes people from death to life. Okay, I know that's a lot. Everyone take a deep breath. I know I threw out a ton of information and I just wanna uh, reiterate um, after, we'll do a Q&A in a second, but I wanted to reiterate, I am not trying to address emotional or personal issues that you may have with the Bible. I would love to talk to you more personally about that after this, or another staff member would love to like walk you through some of those objections you have, but know that this was not meant to uh, gloss over those things or ignore them, but just to have a separate time for you to process those things. And so my hope uh, for you moving forward is that you would learn to embrace the promises of the Bible and trust the God of the Bible. So um, that's all I have, but we'll do a Q&A for the next like 15 minutes and then we'll be dismissed for lunch. So uh, I'll go ahead and call this a question and response because if I don't have an answer, uh, I'll respond, but I may not have an answer. So um, yeah, so you guys can just raise your hand if you have any questions. That's a great question. Um, if I'm under, I'm gonna repeat the question because it's being recorded. So you're saying with the example I used from Matthew 5, where the word without cause or the phrase without cause is adding, uh, are you saying, is that, isn't that actually important because it, can, it uh, basically can give us justified anger in some situations? Um, that's a great question. I think, uh, that's a really good question. I think it's okay to be angry. Uh, there, like Jesus himself got angry. Um, I think it's James that says, <clears throat> do not let the sun go down on your anger. I think that's James, maybe somewhere else. Um, so there, there is like a righteous, holy anger that we can have. Um, so I think whether or not without cause is in there, I think it's a helpful clarification of, yeah, we can be angry at some points. That's probably why someone put that in there because it probably is okay to be angry with cause. Um, but I don't think our doctrine of anger and righteous anger comes solely from Matthew 5. I think we would get that from other passages with like Jesus' example, as well as James telling us to uh, be angry and do not sin, I think is another Bible verse. Like, 
you know, there is a, there is a way to be angry in other passages of the New Testament that does not include sin. So, does that answer your question? Great. What other questions? Uh, yes, in the back. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> Bringing out all stops. Uh, the question was, how would I change this presentation if I was giving it to primarily a group of non-believers? I think one of the biggest um, is I wrote this session uh, in mind, like keeping Charles's session in mind from last night, that I'm not trying to convince you guys that God is trustworthy. I'm not trying to convince, I'm, I'm personally not trying to convince you guys that Jesus was a real person who walked the earth and died for our sins. Um, I'm assuming we all believe that. So if I was doing this in a group of non-Christians, I would probably lay out more facts about Jesus and the historical evidence for him as a person, um, even outside the Bible. I would probably, um, I would probably also include, yeah, non, non-biblical examples of his, or non-biblical descriptions of Jesus as well as what the Bible says about Jesus in detail. Um, I probably walk through like the biblical narrative with them as well as addressing some of those common objections. So I don't know if that's a great answer, but that's maybe how I would change it. And then the blue shirt guy, you had a question? That's great. I actually had that in there and cut it for time. So I'm glad you asked it. Now I can talk about it. Um, My short answer, uh, the question was how... Basically, I didn't include facts about the Old Testament's reliability and trustworthiness. Uh, where do we get that from? So there, there's two ways to answer that. One is to trust Jesus and the words of the New Testament. So if we trust that the New Testament is inspired and that Jesus' words are reliable, um, Jesus himself approved of the Old Testament in several places throughout the Gospels. And the early church, they all, everyone believed the Old Testament was inspired. That's why, the new, that's why this is not uh, a huge point of contention in the Bible, because everyone is under the assumed assumption that Old Testament is the word of God. So I would trust Jesus in him approving the Old Testament. But a really cool example of uh, kind of the other way I would answer it is something called the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you guys have heard of that. So basically, um, before the mid-1900s, the earliest Hebrew manuscripts we had of the Old Testament uh, was from 1000 AD, which if Genesis is written in like 1400, uh, 2,400 years is obviously a long time. Um, So those were the earliest Hebrew manuscripts we had. Uh, These kids were playing in a cave somewhere in the Middle East, and they, like, found this cave, and it actually had these old Hebrew scrolls, which were scrolls of the Old Testament. And so scholars started discovering these and, like, dating them and stuff. And so they were dated to, um, I think, the first century or, like, 100 BC, kind of around that time period. So you have a 1,000-year gap between these new scrolls that we found and the 1000 AD Hebrew manuscripts we've been using for a millennia. And if you look at them, they're almost identical. There are some slight differences, um, kind of similar, similar, somewhat similar ones to the ones I shared for the New Testament. But by and large, the words are almost entirely the same. So we obviously can't trace it back to 1400 BC, but I think that shows between roughly like 100 BC to uh, 1000 AD, at least in those 1,000 years, almost nothing was changed. And the things that were changed, like, don't contradict doctrine or complicate things. So that's what I would say for the Old Testament. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, I recommend three resources. One is a book called Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. It's really short. Um, It's pretty easy read. But it basically walks through everything I said. So you can just read that if you want more details on what I said. But Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert is a really good short one. Kind of goes over like translation, philosophy, manuscripts. Um, Confronting Christianity is a really good resource. That's probably my highest recommendation. So that's written by uh, Dr. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin. Um, So she wrote a book that basically answers the 12 hardest questions about Christianity. And... uh, some of them are about like the Bible's description of women, uh, racial justice, uh, some other like how the Bible and science correlate. So that book is a pretty good catch-all for like most questions uh, we struggle with or people we know would struggle with. And then lastly, there's a website. Um, it's called karm.org, C-A-R-M.org. It just has a bunch of random 
articles about every random historical question you could ever ask. Um, so it's a really good resource. Uh, I will warn you, the guy's a little harsh sometimes in the way he speaks or the way he like writes, um, but I think his content is really good. So I would say those are three I would recommend. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think it may depend on the religion. Uh, I'll speak for Islam specifically. Um, the story, the, so part of the story of Islam starting is um, all of like Muhammad's disciples actually uh, memorized his teaching like orally. So they like had rhythm and rhyme and stuff. So everyone, no one like wrote it down basically. Uh, supposedly, uh, towards the end of their lives when they all realized that we're dying, um, some people started to write down their versions of like the Quran or the teachings from Muhammad. Um, <clears throat> those teachings actually did contradict one another. And so they were different. Uh, then I think 50, 60 years later, um, the, the king at the time, the like Muslim caliph, he actually ordered everyone who has a written copy of the Quran to bring it. And he burned all of them except for one. So in Islam, there is one authoritative version of the Quran that was uh, preserved over all the other ones that were destroyed. Um, in terms of ex existing documents, I don't think there are existing. I don't know what the dates would be on uh, any kind of like original documents. Uh, so there were no there were no written documents by Muhammad, for example. Um, his disciples didn't really write anything down. So I would I don't know the numbers or the years, but I would assume it's a lot lower, even because of how they view. Uh, they view the Quran primarily as a, like an auditory thing, not a written word of God, if that makes sense. So because I think they place less value on the written Quran, I think there is less of a, less of a motivation to preserve it uh, through written means. That's a great question. Anyone want to help me? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, question is, um, if God loves his people so much, why would he kill all of mankind, for example, in Noah's Ark slash the flood. Um, I mean, Noah's flood is a hard story. So I recognize that. Um, I think when you read, I think I'll say this. We often focus on God as being a God of love, which is true. I think I believe God is perfect in love. He loves, he loves everyone. He loves all of humanity. He loves his, uh, he loves believers, especially in like a different way, covenantal way. As Charles was saying last night, um, but also God is a God of justice. And so as you're reading Genesis 6, specifically talking about uh, all of humanity, what they're doing, they are engaging in some pretty wicked things. Um, and so God is loving, but he also is just and has to punish them. And so I don't think his love contradicts his punishment or his justice or his wrath. Um, so I don't want to dis dismiss either side of his character. So in some way, I don't have a, uh, well, you asked what my response would be, not what is the answer. Uh, so my response to that is that love and wrath or love and justice don't contradict. And that even by, even by God allowing those people to continue to live in such blatant rebellion all over the earth with no hope of like, no at least earthly sense of hope of like redemption or change in their behavior. Like they're not, they're clearly wicked and they're not going to change. Um, so I think, God in his sovereign choice decided to save one family and restart there. And obviously we see that still has a lot of problems too, but I would say that uh, God in his sovereignty and in his love and his justice chose at that particular time to restart all of humanity and why he doesn't do that now. Part of it's because he promised not to, but part of it's just a sovereign choice. Yes. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the question is, um, even, uh, tell me if this is a good rephrasing of your question. Uh, even the Bible not addressing some of those things does not inherently promote those things. Is that basically what you're saying? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of different ways to answer this and a lot of people that fall in different camps. So I'll give you maybe what I think, what camp I might fall into. Um, I don't think Jesus and the apostles came to reform society primarily. They also didn't come to... Uh, give a bunch of like laws for like all of Rome to follow. I think the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the apostles, uh, I've heard it said that they, they planted, they plant the seeds that later grew into like uh, the abolitionist movement, for example, like 
the Bible is, when it comes to a lot of the things, the Bible's primary uh, like concern is not to overturn the system of slavery, and it's not primarily to overturn Roman society in regards to like other things. Um, the Bible is primarily concerned, it's primarily concerned with teaching us the way of salvation, teaching us the heart of Jesus, teaching us the heart of God. Now that does lead to reform, that does lead to us caring about society, but I think Jesus and his mission and the apostles' mission was not primarily to do that. So I've heard it said that this, the seeds planted by the apostles and planted by Jesus are the seeds that grew into uh, the abolition movement of slavery, for example. Um, but I, I mean, I think that's a hard question and a real one because like, yeah, like, Paul, why don't you just say that slavery is wrong? Uh, part, of it's, uh, part of it's that, what I just said, that I, I think that uh, Paul is not primarily concerned with that. Uh, not that he doesn't care about it, but that in his writing, what he's trying to do first and foremost is instruct believers, um, not all of society. So, in, but with that passage in Ephesians specifically, I don't think Paul is um, condoning slavery. I don't think he's also telling people to go sell themselves into slavery. I think he's saying, hey, you find, you, you're, you're a servant and a master. You're both not Christian. One of you or both of you becomes Christian. Here's how you ought to live as a result. You're, like, you shouldn't just run away necessarily. Uh, you shouldn't just do whatever. Like, you are, you are called to still obey your master. You are still called to love them, even as Christ like, loved and served those who hated him. So, um, complex question. Hope that answered it well enough. But we'd love to talk to you more about that after this, if you would like. Got a couple more minutes. Yes? Yeah. So, what, what I often do, um, I, I first... I, I first try to hear them out and like ask them, try to get to the, the deeper heart issue of like, why are they so adamant about this Bible verse meaning this specific thing? So people have tons of like heart level reasons and emotional reasons why they want to twist a verse or misinterpret it. Or maybe they genuinely think it actually says that. And they're like, not being like overtly wicked, but they have something in their past that is affecting the way they're viewing that verse. So I would first listen to them, ask them tons of questions about what they think about life, the world, the gospel, and try to understand why they're interpreting that verse that way. That also helps them feel loved and heard that you're not just intellectually debating with them, but you're caring for them as a person. So I would definitely start with that. And then on a more technical level, I would read the passage with them slowly. I would read even the whole book. Like if they're taking like a passage out of John, uh, like out of context, I would just read the whole gospel of John with them. And so then they can see what, what, is, what are the other things John says that would help clarify this. And so you can either do that with them or bring it before them after you've done your own research. So that's kind of how I would do it. And then at some point, you can't convince people to believe the word of God. You can't convince them to have the right interpretation. And so I think after you pray for them, you love them well, you walk with them. I think then you, if they are still really stubborn, that's like, okay. I think you just continue being their friend Say, hey, man, I don't know what else to say. I've given you the truth, and I still want to be your friend, but I don't really have any other points. 